husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of God. Let's ask God's blessing on this reading. O Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Open our minds to renew our minds so that we can understand your truth, to recognize it, to trust it, to put our uh, lives in its hands as a word from you. And we pray that we would not just be hearers of this word, but that we would be doers as well. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the uh, common things that pastors talk about these days especially is uh, under what circumstances to marry people. And uh, in the very beginning of my time as a pastor, uh, I had couples come to me to ask to be married who were living together without being married. And uh, it would have been tempting at the time to say, well, do you love each other? the way you think married people do? And I'm sure they would have all said yes. And I could have said, do you feel like your commitment to one another is the same commitment that married people have? And I'm sure they would have said yes. And I could have been very tempted to perhaps surprise them and say, look, you've got all the things that marriages have anyway, so why bother? But obviously they were coming to me to ask to be married, so that wasn't the answer they were looking for. And this is not just true recently, but as I said, in my earliest days as a pastor, uh, this was a common situation, and it's become much much more common today. Uh, Usually I would respond by giving the good reasons to get married. Uh, The permanence of commitment, the depth of commitment, the security that it provides, uh, but also the the requirements, the, the obligations, the the, the requirement of a commitment to, uh, to, to not uh, in plenty or in want, in sickness or in health, or until death do them part kind of commitment. And uh, that's where the cell will sometimes get tough. Because of all the benefits that we can think of, of the permanence for not only couples but their children in committed marital relationships, the fact is that If you look out there and you look at how marriage is doing, generally speaking, it's not its best sales pitch. That um, a lot of young people who are doubting the benefits of marriage today can even look at their own parents and say, I don't want a relationship like that. And if I get one like that, I want to be able to get out of it a lot easier than it was for my parents. Well, I hinted already, I'm not really talking about marriage today, uh, and it's my purpose really to focus on the question of the church, but the question for us in that regard is this. 
do we sometimes bring our attitude toward the church that is similar to that kind of attitude toward marriage? In other words, have we unwittingly or perhaps intentionally decided we're going to have a more of a cohabiting attitude toward our relationship to the church than a marital commitment. Because these verses from Ephesians 5 tell us this, that the way Christ loved the church is the way we are supposed to love the church. And Christ has loved the church with a sacrificial love. And so we must love the church as Christ loved her. That's the challenge of these verses today. We can say much about marriage, because that's Paul's principal application here, but in the process, as Paul often does, in trying to give some of the most imminent practical application, he gives us some of the highest theology. And he gives us perhaps one of the highest points of theology about the relationship of Christ and his church in these verses. Because Christ loved his church supremely, we must love the church as Christ loved her. That's the thesis of this morning's message. And to see that, we must simply look at the parties involved and what has happened. The parties being the bridegroom and the bride and the wedding guests. First, the bridegroom. These verses will tell us that Christ loved the church with a sacrificial love. And if we want to know what love is, we must look to his example. It says that pretty simply there. um, Love your wives, in verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the love story between Jesus and his bride, the church. Uh, There's much that could be said about the content of these verses that I I won't go into uh, because I want to spend most of our time on application today. But Paul is essentially here taking uh, the relationship between Christ and the church and saying marriages are supposed to reflect that analogy. He's not saying that Christ and the church is an illustration of marriage, but rather that marriage is supposed to be an illustration or an analogy of the reality, which is Christ's love for the church. And Paul weaves back and forth between Jesus and the church and why. He starts out with the wives and then Jesus and the church, and then husbands and then Jesus and the church. And then he goes to a more specific application. You might have seen the Quote from the book of Genesis, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He goes even deeper into the the idea of one man and one woman becoming one being, one flesh in marriage, to take that analogy even deeper. But for our purposes, we want to simply look at how Christ loved the church. He loved the church with a sacrificial love, and his example is the consummate expression of love. Christ loved the church, that he gave himself up for her. And there's a purpose that goes with that in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself up for the church. Why did he do it? It says, because he loved her. Christ did not do this for some utilitarian purpose, but out of free, pure 
love. Ephesians tells us that God freely chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's love is non-contingent. It is a complete and unhindered expression of God himself. God is free, and he loves freely those whom he loves. You and I are maybe not quite that way. We, I think when I was in the dating game in my teens and 20s, early 20s, and I might see a young lady, and I remember when I met the woman who was to become my wife, I was marginally helpless when I first saw her. She was attractive. to. There's something about her that, that drew me toward her. And it wasn't just her appearance. It was her personality and her interest in things like this. So it wasn't quite fair because I wasn't quite free because she was not a neutral object. Well, when Paul explains to us the love of Christ for the church, he says not only was the church not a neutral object, but rather it's an adverse object for affection. Because the whole implication is if, if he married her, if he gave himself up for her to sanctify her, to set her apart, to cleanse her, the implication is what? That the church needed cleansing. And the whole story of the Old Testament has many um, uh, versions of this, of how God found Israel. Ezekiel 16 is a somewhat graphic parable of it. That when God happened upon Israel, uh, she was... A, a, a newborn, abandoned in the desert, not even cleaned of her afterbirth. It's a very graphic chapter. And God found her, and he, he took her to him, and he, he, he cleaned her up, and he, he nurtured her, and, and when she came of age, he, he gave her a, a wedding garment, which in, in that culture is a, the engagement ring. I think of a, if I were to think of the prospect of, hus- of, of, of fiancés buying their, their, their future bride's wedding gowns today, that would probably be a non-starter. But in that context, that's, that's the sign of pledge. And, and so God's love in Christ is freely administered to his people, not because of conditions and not even non-conditionally, but as one Christian counselor has said, God's love is contra-conditional. Because God loves what is unlovely, which teaches us about the nature of God's love. And to, 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 to miss this and to, to talk about the broader lesson here, it would be a complete failure to miss this, to miss the fact that we are first loved before we speak of loving the church, would be a fatal mistake on this subject. We must first comprehend how we have been loved. The greatest, probably the greatest love story of the 20th century uh, began in January of 1936, and some of you know the story. Uh, The Duke of Windsor was crowned Edward VIII, that year. King of England, the only last respectable monarchy on earth at the time. But less than 11 months later, he abdicated the throne. You know why, right? Edward had met an American divorcee named Wallace Simpson. 
she was American and divorced. Those two things were fatal when it came to the king of England making a marriage. But Edward did something that, while it scandalized many at the time, it became, again, one of the greatest love stories of the 20th century. He abdicated his throne, abdicated his throne, so that he might marry this scandalous woman. He was helpless to maintain his crown while entering into a union with her. But look at this marriage between Christ and the church. The groom is not helpless. He abdicates only in the sense that he humbles himself. Theologians call it his estate of humiliation. Philippians 2 speaks to us of this, that though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but instead he emptied himself. Not that he ceased to become God, but he laid aside all of his divine privilege the divine glory that he had in the beginning with the Father before the world was made, that sweet, intimate, infinite, and eternal fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit experienced interruption and change. Why? So that Christ could redeem for himself a people. So he humbled himself to the point of death, and even death on a cross. But then Philippians 2 goes on to say, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess that Christ is Lord. But he did more than ascend back to heaven, because when he ascended on high, Colossians 3 tells us that we ascended with him. We are seated with him in the heavenly places, that he has brought us nigh to God, one of the hymns says. So that Christ didn't just simply identify with, with us in the pea pods of the, of the pigsties of the prodigal, but he brings us back to the Father's house. That's divine love. We love because he first loved us, John tells us in 1 John 4. John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given that we might be called the sons of God. We are the objects of Christ's passion, the objects of his love, the apple of his eye. On uh, the occasion where I do uh, conduct a wedding, I learned from one of my mentors that a very important thing is to get the rehearsal down right. Have, have you been to a wedding rehearsal? Uh, those can be a circus if, the, if, you, if you don't have the good parameters. And now in the last 10 or 15 years, the whole wild card of dealing with wedding planners has complicated ministers' lives. And I'm sure ministers complicate their lives. But I learned that once the rehearsal of the ceremony begins, I need to go through it three, four, sometimes even five times. Because I don't want people thinking on the wedding day. They, they need to get that thinking thing done before the wedding day. And so I want them to be on autopilot so they could enjoy themselves. But I learned from one of my mentors that about the third or fourth time you go through and you say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? You can sort of break the tension a little bit and say, who is paying for this elaborate affair? And if I've done my job right, the, the, the father of the bride at that point starts to say, I, 
but then he stops in mid-sentence with a painful look on his face. We do have this uh, tradition um, in, uh, in America, the father of the bride pays for the wedding. I have a Singaporean friend. In Singapore, the father of the groom pays for the weddings. He wants his two daughters to marry American men and uh, sons to marry... Um, wait. He wants his two daughters to marry Singaporean men and his sons to marry American women, so he pays for no weddings. But don't you see here, who paid for this wedding? He gave himself up for her. The groom paid for this wedding to make himself one with his people. And this is divine love. There's perhaps a a difference between men and women in terms of understanding the significance of this. Uh, Many little girls grew up uh, daydreaming, daydreaming about their wedding day and thinking far ahead of what it would be like and uh, the, the, the love story, uh, the, the fairy tale kind of lands differently, uh, at least uh, historically, um, with, um, with girls perhaps more than boys. I think men uh, sometimes stand far off and can't perhaps even grasp, grasp this metaphor as well. Uh, but we men also want to be loved. Uh, and uh, the fact is that those who are not loved or those who do not believe themselves to be loved do not love well. So it's even a way that we can walk backwards through this challenge and say, do I love well? And if I find that I don't love well, I must ask myself, do I believe I am loved? This is divine love. The bridegroom who gave himself for his bride, for his church. But now, let's go on from that, after that example of divine love, and look now at the bride. The bride in this wedding is the one whom Christ has loved, and because it is his love that makes his church lovely, we are challenged to look at the church through the eyes of Christ, her bridegroom. So to look at the bride, we must look at it through the eyes of her bridegroom. And we find that he loved her, (laughs) that he might sanctify her. To sanctify means to set apart. Now, if you've studied a little bit of the Bible, you might think of holiness, and that is a related related word, and that's the same concept here. But Holiness does not first have to do with moral purity. It does have to do with that secondarily. But holiness, first of all, means belonging to, being set apart for another. And so in Christ's um, redeeming, uh, marrying work with his bride, he is setting her apart for himself. And that implies, directly and clearly, doesn't it, that we belong to another. This is why the Bible uses adultery as a prime metaphor for sin and immorality. Because to not belong to the Lord is to belong to another. We are creatures of loves, and we love things, and we don't love things that love us. And so Christ 
died for the church so that he might set her apart for himself and free her from her abusive lovers. That's the the big picture of the Bible. And how is he going to do that? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So she is found by him in a filthy or unclean state, which again is a biblical metaphor for immorality and sin. But he is going to cleanse her. It says he has cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And washing of water there is a pretty clear allusion to baptism, that that sacrament by which we enter into the fellowship of the church. And the word there is a particular word that uh, means the proclamation of the word, the proclaimed word of God, the gospel. So by the gospel and baptism, Christ has set apart his bride, for himself, verse 27, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor. See, he's readying her for her wedding day. I just performed a wedding for a pastor friend who had been widowed. This was just a few months ago, and everybody was waiting to see the bride come through that back door of the window. It was the back door of 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 the sanctuary, Uh, He hadn't seen her wedding dress before that day, but he hadn't seen her in that wedding dress either that day. And I tell you, it was sickening how gobsmacked he looked. I told him at the rehearsal, I said, you've got to straighten up because you're making me nauseous. He was at 63 years old, nauseatingly in love and enthralled with her. And she merited it, I have to say. She was a beautiful bride, but that's not the story here, is it? He is readying his church for her wedding day so that she is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It tells us that the church needs cleanse, that the people for whom Christ died needed him to die. For them, there is a spotless bridegroom and a spotted fiance who will become spotless because of his love. <clears throat> Joan Rivers, a late comedian, used to say, Can we talk? Um, I've been to weddings where I have noticed a bride or a groom being cosmetically challenged. Think about that for a minute. The veil goes up, and maybe you think, maybe go back down. <laughs> now, you, and the same thing for grooms. I'm not trying to apply a double standard here. Or, probably more commonly, it's not appearance, it's we know there's something not good there. He doesn't have regular work. Uh, some, some, some issue of concern. At, my, at, at Vicky's in my uh, wedding, uh, the man who married us um, gave, uh, challenged us with, an, he, he called it an ancient Chinese proverb. It probably came out of the uh, entertainment section of the paper, but it said, learn to love the one you marry. And that's been a very helpful advice for us because when you marry someone, even if you've known them a long time, you find out more about them. (laughs) And 
the ledger can be pretty evenly stacked sometimes, or people can change and they become a different person than you married. And this is one of the principal reasons that people divorce. They grow apart, as, uh, as sometimes is often said. And so it's a challenge to learn to love the person to whom you're married. You think you're in love, or as Kenny Rogers sang, something like it. But love takes a lifetime of cultivation because people aren't static objects that never grow and change. And we learn more about one another. But here's where the challenge comes in. What was it of the bride of Christ that was unknown to the eternal Son of God when he gave his life for her? What aspect of the church's personality, what, what episode of her historical failings, what place of her cultural idolatry was beyond his knowledge when he gave himself for her? We have an expression, beauty is in the eye what? of the beholder. Who is the beholder in this wedding? But the one who can make unclean things clean. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the challenge comes. Many of you here probably have had experiences where you said, I'm pretty much done with church. Or, I'm pretty much done with unconditional commitments to church. Or, you have family members or friends who have said, I'm done with church. You heard the old joke, man wakes up and says, honey, I'm not going to church today. It's full of hypocrites, so people are unfriendly. Uh, they just care about themselves. And she says, I know, honey, but you're the pastor. You have to go. <laughs> but there, is n- there was nothing beyond Christ's knowledge when he willingly gave himself up for her. And so this changes how we look at the bride. We don't love the bride because she is love-worthy. And it helps, again, to go back to point one, to remember that we are of that object of affection. We are among those who belonged to another and had to be ransomed from our false and abusive lovers and have been claimed by the bridegroom of true love. So, yes, the church is that and everything else. But it's God's plan A. <laughs> and, um, and this has been a hard lesson in the last, I would say, 40 or 50 years. You know, Western Christianity has majored on individualistic views of a relationship with God. And I've heard many people over my life, uh, people my age, a little older, uh, usually and a little bit younger, Say, I don't care about organized religion. I care about a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, when you get married, you get organized. And getting organized is just a fact of living and loving and, and, and going through life together. So God's people get organized and, 
and, and, and, and the New Testament teaches us. We have under-shepherds, and we have ways of doing things, and, and we have ways of knowing the mind of God, and we have the Word of God to guide us. So that is like the, the worst last thing that my generation says about Christianity. I'm into relationship, not a religion. That is a great false dichotomy. Yes, there are toxic churches. There are churches full of error. And what I'm saying this morning in no way should relieve us of discernment. Is a church teaching the scriptures? Are they worshiping God in faithfulness? Uh, Are they a church that um, is is abusive or uh, authoritarian? There are bad churches. There's no question. And there are wrong churches. Probably not as many as we think there are, but, um, but all, that's, all that's having said all that, these verses teach us something very profound about how Christ feels about the church and what he's done about it. And so that's the last thing I would like us to think about this morning. Not just the, um, the bridegroom and not just who the bride is, but what does this then require of us? And uh, what this requires of us simply is this, that if we love Jesus, we must love his church. If we love Jesus, we must love his church. And one simple way of, of demonstrating this is, if you, if you look at what it says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that's the exact same verbiage used back in chapter, um, the same chapter, verse 1. Be imitators of God as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In other words, Christ's pattern of love for the church is not just the example for husbands to love their wives, but it's the every Christian example of love. That it's not, Christ is not simply teaching us how husbands ought to love their wives, but Christ is teaching us about how every Christian ought to love his people. Uh, this, um, this is profound in that it expresses it in terms of marital love. Yes, following the example of Christ in marriage love is supremely important. It is a profound and lifelong lesson for every husband and wife. It goes against the prevailing views of marriage and love in society. It did at the time. In the Greco-Roman world, marriage was seen as a contractual agreement principally, the same way as today, that love existed outside and apart from marriage, legal or not. And the biblical view of marriage was radical in terms of the depth and the permanence of its commitment. So yes, this, these verses teach a radical view of love, marital love, in contrast to society. Uh, and, and, and Christian marriage, this is a bit of a side point, but Christian marriage is supposed to tell the old, old story. This is why uh, I've been involved in the last couple of years, but this is why there's so much preoccupation with, with putting stakes in the ground in terms of gender identity and sexuality and marriage because... These verses teach us that one of the principal ways in which the world knows how Jesus loves his church is in seeing how men and women relate in marriage. And Christian marriages are a great opportunity to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. But 
as I've said before, our preoccupation today is how this shapes our relationship to the church and how it should condition our commitment to the church. Um, So think a little bit about the nature of your own commitment to the church. Just like there are a lot of different kinds of marriages, there are a lot of different kinds of church commitments. Uh, There's one, what I call the gold digger commitment. Uh, That is, I go to a church for what I can get from it. And this is uh, probably the prevailing metaphor in these days, the church as the mall. You know, a mall isn't just one store, it's many stores. And as long as they have enough of the stores that you like, you'll go to that mall. But they close your papyrus or your, your, um, uh, your, uh, your coal, and the coals is not in malls. Uh, see, I don't go to malls. Um, but they close your favorite stores, and you'll look at another mall. Uh, that's what I do. Well, this is how people approach church. And, and a lot of, there's, been a, there's a lot of turning away these days from what's called program-driven churches, where churches just offer program upon program upon program to attract people. Because here's the thing, how people are attracted to the church is how they are kept at the church. And if, you, and if we are drawn to the church because of consumer relationship, whether we stay at that church is going to be dependent upon a consumer attitude. Uh, there's, it's not as common as it used to be, but there are power marriages. Somebody marries someone uh, for wealth or, or reputation or prestige or... Um, you know, one great, I think, confidence that my wife and I took in our marriage, I was the son of a railroader and she was the son of a farmer. We brought nothing. <laughs> so we, what, what we were getting was basically us and any future earnings. And I was in seminary, so she was a teacher. So again, good footing to start off with. Um, but uh, sometimes people do marry uh, for a step up. And it's off. It's, it used to be more the case. It's not as much anymore, but uh, people might associate with a particular church because of its standing in the community or because of the connections it's made. I've been telling them, I've been network marketed more by church people than any other kind of people. That tells you something. And so we can often have that kind of, uh, of, 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 of commitment or relationship as well. Or just a simple cohabitation type of, of relationship. I want to be around people. Church is a good place to meet safe people and be around safe people, and that's not a bad thing. But if that's the basis of our relationship to the church, you see it's not like Christ's relationship to his church. And so the challenge for us is, do we love the church contraconditionally, which is how Christ loved the church. And that might work itself out in several details. Um, Membership is a complicated issue. Uh, Yes, there are many churches that treat membership as a mere formality, uh, that it doesn't really say anything about a person's growth and spirituality. Uh, Churches take in members. They don't pay attention as long as there are enough people in the pews. But then... Uh, when there's a crisis, they start to look at, uh, at their, their numbers and their membership differently. Membership, again, can be abused and overblown, but 
The substance of what membership is about is about a commitment. About saying, I'm going to be part of this people, rain or shine, no matter what comes, except under the most extreme circumstances, I will never question my commitment and contribution and involvement in the body of Christ because I'm part of it. Uh, Paul has said here, we are members of one another. And that just doesn't mean membership in the formal sense, but it means as a body, we are parts of that body united under Christ, our living head. Uh, This is the first in a series. Uh, We're going to be looking at many different biblical metaphors for the church, the body of Christ, uh, the flock of God, the city of God, and, and several others. But this is the perfect one to begin to think about what is my understanding of the church of Jesus Christ? What is the nature of my relationship to it? And very simply put, we are to love the church as Christ has loved the church or to aspire to that over the course of our life. In whatever form or pattern that takes in, your, in, your, in the specifics of your life, that is the challenge that these verses present to us this morning. I have a daughter. Uh, she's 27 now. Um, when she was four, the church we were part of, I called it Christian Halloween. It was called a harvest party. It just happened to be on October 31st. And uh, it was... Um, it was how not to be in our houses answering the door on Halloween night. Um, and you could ask your non-Christian friends to go. And there would be games and, and drinks and food, lots of sugar and lots of candy to be given out. And so some weeks ahead of time, my, my daughter was planning on what her costume would be that night for this Christian Halloween. And um, she had a little lacy white dress-up gown that looked like a bridal gown. So she decided that she would go as a bride. And so we all got involved. My wife made a veil using a little simple barrette with uh, some lace uh, sewn to it. Uh, My contribution was the shoes. Uh, There was a pair of shoes that were worn and starting to get a little too small. They were black, but I painted them gold flake. Uh, I couldn't get regular uh, spray paint, so I used... uh, what do you call it, tacky paint or tacky glue paint, but that's what I used sort of like Elmer's glue, but it should have dried. We had plenty of time, but you know, these humid Florida days, um, and I was using the hair dryer, you know, moments before we left for the party uh, to try to get the the shoes to to completely dry. Uh, The deacons had made sure that the church lawn had been mowed that day, so progressively, those shoes became fuzzy slippers. <laughs> and as we went from game to game and candy to candy, and, uh, and, and Rachel progressively spilled more Kool-Aid on her gown, and uh, her accessories progressively went into my back pocket, you know, we were on our way uh, 30 seconds before child meltdown, we were on our way back to my car so I could take her home. And I looked at her and I thought, she's some bride. <laughs> and uh, then I got started thinking, you know, someday she may walk the aisle for real. Like I said, she's 27, committed Christian, smart. Her odds are not getting better. We talk about this a lot, but 
Um, Nevertheless, it made me think that night. And I remember hearing Steve Brown quote Chuck Swindoll. Steve Brown had two daughters get married the same summer. He said, Chuck Swindoll said, giving your daughter away in marriage is like handing a Stradivarius to a gorilla. (laughs) Painful, isn't it? Um, But I thought, no, on that day, on that day, she's not going to look like she looks tonight. She's going to look glorious. Beautiful, glowing, because it will be a day for which she has prepared. Well, in this wedding that is the subject of our scripture text this morning, we see the end of the story. We see at the end of the book of Revelation that the bridegroom comes forth out of his chamber to meet the, the bride. And the bride is revealed in all her glory. As she now is in the heavenly places, she will one day be outwardly. And it is because of the redeeming love of her bridegroom, who gave himself up for her, that he might cleanse her to present her to himself, to sanctify her by the washing of water and the word. There is no greater romance in the universe than the romance between Christ and and his church, and it should set the standard for every other human love. And it should especially set the standard for our own decisions about how we might love Christ's bride like he does. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that we would find it within us to understand more what motivated you to love your church as you did, Because in our heart of hearts, we want to know what motivated you to love us as you have. But we pray, Lord, as we understand more and more how you have loved us, that it would flow out from us in a love for your bride. Whether this bride, whether one down the street, whether the one we'll find ourselves in in another place in a year or for the rest of our lives, Lord. Help us to have wisdom to figure it out, but help us not to find scruples for loving your bride while you found none. And we ask this in the name of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen.